There it is, green light. All right. Amen. Not to me or not to Jessica, but amen to the truth about our God and the gospel. And amen to those songwriters who have written such beautiful words and melodies for us to be able to sing the gospel in a way that resonates in our ears and our minds and it rests on our hearts and it stays there uh, as we remember it and celebrate it with emotion. Uh, And so I'm thankful always when we sing, I think about the the people who wrote the words that we're singing and how God has used them uh, to bless us, uh, even sometimes over hundreds of years and thousands of years uh, that we sing. I want to look this morning at Psalm 100. So if you have a Bible, I hope that you do. There are some in the pews as well. You can turn there with me. Psalm 100, maybe a familiar psalm, often quoted psalm, a general psalm. The, the heading says it's a psalm for giving thanks. We often think about it as just a psalm, a general psalm of praise, a psalm about praising the Lord and worshiping the Lord together. Before we get there, um, I wanted to share with you, I have a picture. Is that up there? Um, Last night, we had the privilege, Jessica and I and Charlotte, went uh, up to Gates County, uh, which is just across the Virginia border. Uh, Some folks that we uh, knew and loved and still love when we were up in Suffolk, Virginia, before coming here. Um, But uh, up there, uh, this is uh, Pastor Jeremy Effler and his wife, Jessica. Uh, And then, of course, you notice the other uh, three folks there, hopefully. Um, but they are leaving tomorrow uh, to head to Burkina Faso, Africa, uh, to, to move there permanently. It's a one-way ticket, um, and they have five children. There's, uh, two are adults, and so the other three are going with them, um, and they're going to be in Burkina Faso uh, working and ministering uh, as missionaries there starting this week. And so last night there was a, a kind of a send-off, a farewell, and then this morning at their church they're having a commissioning service for them. Um, but uh, I just wanted to show that to you and maybe uh, say a prayer for them, uh, thank the Lord for them. Uh, Jeremy was on staff with me at, at my former church as the youth pastor uh, and missions pastor, and he um, is a special individual, a special person uh, with a heart for the Lord. Um, with uh, you know, he, he might tell you that I taught him about worship, but he taught me as much about worship as I might have taught him. Uh, maybe not about music, but about what it means to be a worshiper, what it means to love the Lord uh, and to serve him faithfully uh, and to make hard decisions and to be courageous in the face of, uh, of opposition and, and, and be courageous in accepting the calling that God has given them um, to, uh, to go and to minister in Africa. Uh, but one of the things that Jeremy said last night uh, stuck with me, and, and I, and I want to connect it to what we are talking about this morning uh, because one of the things he said when um, they asked him to share a few words um, just with everybody that was there, he, he said that the, the past several months of preparing to leave and preparing to leave, you know, leave your home and your country permanently, um, he said he learned a lot about uh, owning things. And he, he said God had really worked on him and given him such a, a more eternal perspective as, as you're going through and, and you're cleaning out your house uh, and you're throwing things away that you worked years for to buy uh, because you can't take it with you uh, in this new endeavor, because you're fixing up your house that you've worked years for to pay for, and you're fixing it up so that you can rent it out and someone else can enjoy the labor that you have done and put into it, and so you can move away uh, and go and live in 
Africa in the desert. Um, he said it really, it really affected him and his focus on eternal things instead of earthly things, instead of things that we own and holding on to things so tightly and learning how to let go of things that we think are so important that we work and spend so much time and money and energy on and that in a billion years will not matter. Uh, but in a billion years, the souls that we have encountered will matter. Um, and and I, I want to bring that up because as we think about worship, I've entitled the sermon, Called to Worship, uh, as we're thinking about true worship this morning, uh, I want to think about how we think about worship in that same way. We hold on to our ideas about what worship is supposed to be very tightly. And we make a lot of demands about what worship is supposed to be like and look like and feel like and sound like. Almost like it's ours. Almost like it belongs to us. But what we have to understand is that worship is not ours. Worship was not our idea, and we can't view it as something that we invented and that we own. Worship starts with God, and it was always his idea. Okay, and so Psalm 100 is this calling to worship. It's God calling us to worship him. It's a great invitation, not only to his people, but to the entire world, to the entire universe, to all of creation, to worship the creator. Worship is not ours. It's not our idea. It's God's. It was God's idea. And the other thing that I want to start with here is that worship is not optional. We can't view worship as something extra on top of what we do that kind of maybe just increases a little bit, just adds a little bit more to our spiritual life, but it's really not essential. Worship is commanded. Worship is required. It's a duty, it's an obligation, and it's a command from God. But it's also not a burden. It's also not a burden to us. It's a grace. We've sung these words before. Let all with heart and voice before his throne rejoice. Praise is his gracious choice. Alleluia. Amen. Reminds me of Hebrews thirteen fifteen, where it says, Though through him, then, let us continually offer what? A sacrifice not of blood, but of praise to God. Praise is God's gracious choice because it means that the sacrifices of blood that were once required to approach him are no longer required because Christ was the once and for all blood sacrifice. And so now worship is, is God's gracious gift to us. Although it's required, it is not a burden so that we can approach God and interact with God and engage with God uh, without hindrance through Christ. So with those things as our backdrop, worship is not our idea. Worship belongs to God. Worship begins with God calling us to worship him. And the idea that worship is not optional, but it's also not a burden. I want us to dig into the psalm here and see five marks of true worship. Five marks of true worship. Number one, true worship begins with God. You see this in verses one, two, and then four and five all throughout First in verse 1, we see that worship ought to and shall be universal. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. All the earth, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Worship of God, because he created the universe, is due to him from the entire universe. 
that just helps us understand how big God is and how important worship is to him. He doesn't say, oh, if only a few of the people who love me would come and worship me now and then, I'll be good. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And while we know that that's not true right now, and it won't be true until the last day, it will be true. And from then until eternity, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Secondly, we see that the language of this language of increasing nearness to God to show us that God is inviting us into intimate relationship with him. In verse 2 it says, make a jo-, first it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Then it says, serve the Lord with gladness. And then it says, come into his presence with singing. And then in verse 4 it has that same kind of elevation. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. And then it says, bless his name. So first in verse 2 we're invited into his presence. This is a serious and awesome thing. Later on tonight, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to see what it looks like when you are in the literal presence of God. It is a beautiful thing, but it is a frightening thing. It is a terrifying thing because God is perfect and holy and great and so far beyond what we can comprehend that to be in his presence is a serious, awesome thing. But we're invited there. He says, come into my presence with singing. So God is asking us into this intimate relationship. Second, knowing God by name. We shouldn't pass over that. We shouldn't gloss over that, bless his name. We say that a lot. We sing it. We talk about the Lord's name. There's a reason why it's a specific commandment not to take his name in vain. Because his name is tied to his essence, to who he is. And so when we're being told to bless his name, the fact that we even know his name is an indication that he is being intimate with us. He has shared with us his personal name so that we might address him with that personal name. It is a very intimate, special privilege that God is inviting us into. He's inviting us into an intimate relationship. Worship begins with God. We see that the language of the temple is a reminder to us that God has a right to dictate how he is to be worshipped. So this is what we were kind of alluding to in the very beginning, that it doesn't belong to us. God has a right to dictate how he is to be worshipped. It's not up to us. It's not our idea. It's not for us. It's for the Lord. It it ultimately is for us. It's for our building up of faith uh, and for our encouragement and for our growing up into maturity. But it's not primarily for us. And if we get those things out of order, then we'll go down this path that we've gone down as a church, not just tabernacle, but as the church, especially in the United States, of of all this person-centered, man-centered ideas about worship and how we make decisions. Worship is to be God-centered. So in verse 4, it calls up that language of the tabernacle or the temple where it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise, give thanks to him and bless his name. It reminds us about all through Exodus. Pastor Scott on Sunday nights has been going through Exodus. All through Exodus, God dictates in painstaking detail exactly how 
he wants to be worshipped. Chapter after chapter after chapter, it's just descriptions of exactly how the tabernacle should be built with numbers and measurements. It's descriptions of what goes in it, where it goes, where it should be placed, on and on. For, for tens of chapters, it's all just descriptions of God laying out exactly how he wants to be worshipped. Even though we don't have those same kind of detailed instructions in the New Testament, we shouldn't forget that God cares greatly about how he is approached and how he's worshipped. And so when we approach making decisions, when I approach making decisions on your behalf about what we do in worship and what we sing and how we do it and what order it goes in, we should always be asking not merely what would God allow, but we should ask ourselves, what does God prefer? What does God desire? Worship begins with God, and so he has a right to dictate how he's worshipped. Finally, worship is grounded in God's nature, and therefore it will be the same forever. It won't look the same forever. It won't sound the same forever. It won't be in the same language forever. But the essence of what we're doing and why we're doing it in worship is the same forever. Because it's grounded in his nature and his attributes. It says for, in verse 5, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. God's worship first is rooted in who he is. It's rooted in who he is and how he is and his attributes, his character and his nature. And therefore, it will never change. It will never change. It reminds me of another hymn that says, I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. I just think that stands as a great reminder that worship begins with God, it ends with God, that when I am tempted to put any kind of trust in myself, I'm reminded that I change, but he doesn't change. My love comes and goes, but his love is ever sure. True worship begins with God. Number two, true worship flows from our knowledge about God. True worship flows from knowledge. We see this in verses 3 and 5. Verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Our worship of God is based on what we know about God. I love, there's a video that floats around. It's an excerpt from a sermon by one of my favorite preachers, who's Alistair Begg. And Alistair Begg, I'll give him credit so that way I can steal his illustration because it's so good. He talks about going to a church, uh, visiting at a church one weekend where he didn't have to preach, and he was just there, uh, and he's sitting in the back. And it was more of a contemporary church, so he said they had a countdown on the screen, and, and the band started right at zero, you know, and the, played the first song. And he said the worship leader, when he got up, the first thing the worship leader said was, Hey, how do y'all feel this morning? And Alistair Begg says, Well, that's... I could go home now. That's great. That's been so wonderful. And he's like, how do I feel? He's like, well, I got up and I kicked the dog and I tripped over the shoes and then I spilled my coffee on the way to church and the kids were fighting uh, and I stumbled in and someone took my parking spot and I got in here five minutes late and now how do I feel? I feel pretty terrible is how I feel. 
And his point is, don't ask me how I feel. Worship doesn't start with how I feel. He's like, tell me something that I know. And then he quotes the hymn, I've been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. He's like, now tell me something that I know. Now I can go somewhere. Now I've got a place to start. Because it's not starting with me, it's starting with what I know about God. Again, Hebrews thirteen fifteen, when it says, Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, it goes on and says, That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The sacrifice of praise to God, it doesn't say our sacrifice of praise to God is when we get into this ecstasy kind of sense of God's presence and we're in worship and the lights are low and we really just feel like God is there. That's our sacrifice of praise. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, I had a good week, and so I showed up to church in a good mood, and therefore I'm able to worship. I can give God the praise. It says, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's just based on our knowledge. And guess what? You can acknowledge God's name no matter how you feel. You should acknowledge God's name no matter how you feel. No matter what's happened last week, no matter if it was tragedy or celebration, no matter if someone close to us has died or someone new in our family was born, no matter if I lost everything or got a huge bonus, no matter what has happened, I can give the fruit of lips that acknowledge the name of the Lord and offer up that sacrifice of praise. So what is that acknowledging of his name? What should we acknowledge specifically that we see in the psalm? First, we have to acknowledge that God exists. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. We have to acknowledge that he is God. We have to acknowledge that he is there. And related to that, we have to acknowledge that he alone is God. And it might be easy for us to think about that in terms of, well, I don't worship other gods. I don't have idols. Like, I don't have other, like, capital G gods, right? I don't have other, like, supernatural beings that I believe in. Therefore, I'm fulfilling this acknowledgement, right? I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging that there is only one supernatural God. But what about lower G gods? What about all of the things that dictate to us how we spend our time and how we spend our money and where we give our, our attention and where we give our love and our affection? Anything, any earthly thing really can overtake that place and become a God to us. We have to acknowledge that he is God alone and put him first above any other supernatural ideas of God and any earthly ideas of what might rule us. We have to acknowledge that he's our creator, that we are his. It is he who made us. And in the King James, I'm reading from the ESV, in the King James it also says, uh, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. So we have to acknowledge again the same idea that we don't own ourselves. We don't own any of this stuff. We don't own Uh, anything in this world. God created it all and he owns it all. He is our creator and therefore he is our rightful owner. We are in submission to him. We are in subjection to him. He is our sovereign ruler. He is our benefactor. It is he who made us. We are his. And it it reminds us we're not his so so that he can press us under his boot. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. He is our benefactor. He is good. He is loving and merciful. He's faithful and true. In verse 5, we see his steadfast love endures forever. 
his faithfulness to all generations. Bob Coughlin, who's a worship leader and pastor, he asked this, how could anyone ever think that worshiping God is boring? There's no limit to his holiness, no limit to his glory and sovereignty. There's no end to his riches, wisdom, and righteousness. All his attributes exist together in perfect harmony, perfect balance, perfect cooperation, with no contradiction, no confusing, and no diminishing of their glory forever. If we're really focused on worshiping God when we're worshiping, how could we ever think that it's boring? No matter what it sounds like, no matter what it looks like, if the true worship of God is being proclaimed, it cannot be boring if we really understand who it is that we're actually worshiping. True worshipers worship, period. True worshipers are worshipers who truly know God, and if you truly know God, you know Him through Christ, then you know that nothing can keep you from worshiping Him. Nothing else can mediate God's presence except Jesus Christ, and nothing else can separate you from Christ. A style of music can't separate you. The certain skill level of a preacher or a certain preacher's charismatic personality can't make you closer or further from God. Being in a gym rather than a sanctuary can't prevent us from worshiping. True worshipers, mature worshipers, worship no matter what because they know that their worship comes from their knowledge of God and God cannot change. And because of Christ, nothing can separate us from God. Number three, true worship is felt inwardly. It's felt inwardly. It starts from what we know in our mind, but then it's felt inwardly in our hearts. I think I've watched the movie Despicable Me and Despicable Me 2 about 40,000 times because for whatever reason, that's the one thing that Charlotte will like sit down and watch and she's just enamored with it the whole time. And so we have like we have one in the car and two in the in the house or something like that. And so whatever she's at, that's what she gets to uh, that's what we use to placate her, right? Um, but so, so we've heard it over and over again. But if you're familiar with those movies, um, Gru is this big supervillain guy, and it's kind of funny. It's all funny and, and whatever, but he's a supervillain, and he adopts little girls in order to sell cookies to his nemesis to kind of to work a scheme, right? So he goes and adopts these little girls. And so in the second movie, you know, the first movie, it's kind of like he adopts them, and he doesn't really love them. He's using them for his little scheme, and then... Of course, they win his heart, and he becomes their dad. And then the second one, uh, the different plot, you know, so the girls are his, and he's sitting there practicing uh, with the youngest one because she's going to recite a poem in a Mother's Day program at school. And so she's going to practice her poem, and she says, She kisses my boo-boos. She braids my hair. We love you, mothers, beyond compare. Uh, and, then, and, and then so and he's like, That was really good. Why don't we try it less like a zombie? And what's funny, it's funny, but it's also, it's really kind of a, a glimpse into something really deep and serious that as an orphan, she, the reason that she was reciting the poem like a zombie was because she didn't know the, the love of a mother. She'd never had a mother and didn't understand what it was to have a mother. And so to try and express these feelings about a mother for a program, she didn't, she didn't even understand what that was. She was just reading the words. We can have knowledge about God, 
But if we don't believe it and experience it in our hearts, it's just we're zombies reciting things that we don't really understand. So our knowledge of God has to lead to worship that is felt inwardly. Worship that is felt inwardly. Emotion is not a bad thing. Emotionalism is a bad thing. Because emotionalism is seeking the feeling or seeking the experience, the emotional high or low or whatever it is. We're seeking that emotion for its own sake. But real emotion is not for its own sake. It comes from somewhere and it leads to something else. This true emotion that we're talking about with inwardly feeling true worship, it means that it's informed by what we know about God. What we know about God in our mind informs our hearts and it stirs up our affections for God. And then that affection then leads us and motivates us to live in a, a life that glorifies God. And so this real emotion is a part of worship. And without it, worship is not complete. It can't just be a mental exercise. The, the things that we know about God should move us in our hearts. We see it in the psalm, uh, all these words about emotion. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. I don't know about you, I can't really sing without emotion of some kind. So the word singing is not necessarily about like a happy emotion or a sad emotion, but if I'm singing, I'm feeling something. And I think that that's part of why singing is so important, but we'll get to that in a second. Joy, uh, true joy, gladness, thanksgiving. So we're to, we're to worship with joy, which is this deep felt emotion that comes from what we know about God. It's different than just a superficial happiness. Coming before making a joyful noise to the Lord isn't about us always being happy clappy all the time. It isn't about us coming in and having this fake emotion of, of, of happiness and glee just to kind of get ourselves roused up on Sunday morning. Joy is a deep felt emotion that can even be experienced in times of tragedy and hurt. Uh, because we know that God's faithfulness is true for generation to generation. Gladness, serving the Lord with gladness, being obedient and serving him uh, without, without begrudging it, without, uh, without hating it. You know, like serving God because of who he is and knowing that we're doing it because we're serving him and not because we have to do something dutifully, uh, but serving with gladness. Thanksgiving, being thankful instead of being entitled, coming before him, uh, with a humble spirit that I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve especially the gospel. I don't deserve life and breath, but I especially don't deserve that the creator of the world would go to a cross and bleed and die and suffer for my sake so that I could avoid that fate and instead have a fellowship with God in his place. I don't deserve any of that stuff. If I come to worship thinking that way, and thinking that I'm thankful and that I'm humble instead of being entitled, uh, how much different could our experience and how much more could worship affect us and change us? Uh, and, and so these, these things aren't, like, like I said, they're not inconsistent with, with solemnity or reverence or even fear, mourning, even lamenting, joy and gladness. All of these things, God is, all of his attributes work together. All of these emotions can exist together. And the same hymn that I quoted a minute ago, the two other stanzas of that hymn go like this. It says, The clouds may come and go, and storms may sweep my sky. This blood-sealed friendship changes not. The cross is ever nigh. My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. 
what a great assurance that that is to our hearts and our souls that it's okay to feel less whatever. It's okay to feel less worshipful sometimes. It's okay to feel more distant from God at other times. We go through that as emotions as long as we don't start from where we feel and we start from what we know about God and then let that drive how we feel. That's getting at the heart of worship here. Number four, true worship is is expressed outwardly. So it starts with our minds, what we know. It moves our hearts and our affections, and then it's expressed outwardly. It gets expressed outwardly. Uh, The first clue to this is just the fact that we're called to worship publicly. We're called to actually get out of our houses and come to a place with other people and be around other people, as much as that pains some of us, uh, to be around each other uh, and to worship together. We have to do something. As simple as that is, getting out of bed, getting dressed, driving to church, coming in. We had to do something outwardly to express our worship. We had to come to public worship. It's important. But more than that, look at all the actions in the psalm. Make a joyful noise. We have to make a noise. You can't make a noise inwardly. You have to make a noise outwardly. Praise. Bless. Sing. So here we get to singing now. It's my favorite part. Commentator on this psalm said, if we are to sing, we must learn to sing. If we are to sing, we must learn to sing. What he means is, we're commanded to sing, and so even if we don't want to sing, we have to make ourselves learn how to sing. And he doesn't mean you have to learn how to sing like a professional. He doesn't mean you even have to learn to sing like someone else would enjoy hearing it. But you have to learn to sing. Everybody has a song. If you know the gospel, you have a song to sing. If you know God, you have a song to sing. Declining to sing or refusing to sing in worship, get ready, is disobedience. It's disobedience to the Lord. He has not said, sing if if it suits your personality. Sing if you're gifted. Sing if you feel like singing. He says, Come into my presence with singing. There's no caveats. There's no exceptions. There are a lot of reasons why singing in churches has declined over the past few years. A lot of those reasons are on this side of the platform. A lot of the reasons why singing in churches has declined has to do with the songs that my cohorts choose to have you sing. A lot of it has to do with the volume of the accompaniment that we give you to sing with has to do with the the level of the lighting, all kinds of things that I have studied at depth uh, about how to help you sing better. There's a lot of reasons why singing in the churches has gone down because of people in my position on this side of the platform. But whether or not you choose to sing is something that is always ultimately on you. John Wesley said it this way in the 1700s, if singing is a cross for you, then take it up and bear it and you will find a blessing. You will find a blessing. And I, I, I could no better say that um, and encourage you. I'm not trying to beat anybody over the head, but I just want to encourage you. What a blessing, opening your mouth and singing the praises of God. I don't care what your voice sounds like. God knows what your voice sounds like. He created it, and he still wants to hear you sing. Another hymn that we know, it says, Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. 
but children of the heavenly king may speak their joys abroad. Isaac Watts, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. If we know God, the true knowledge of God will move our affections. It will cause us to express that worship outwardly. A big part of that in public worship and in private worship is singing. Finally, true worship results in service to God. True worship results in service to God. So worship starts with God. It's about God. It's God-centered. Worship flows from our knowledge of God, which moves our affections for God, which expresses itself outwardly. And then finally, true worship results in service to God. Verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. All of our service is worship. All of our service to God is worship. It's not just confined to what we call worship in an hour on Sunday or two hours on Sunday or what the case may be. I love this way that Warren Wearsby, the pastor and commentator, he, he puts it into this kind of uh, this phrase. It's like a cycle. He says, worship leads to service, and true service is worship. Worship leads to service, and true service is worship. And you see how that just repeats itself. We, we worship it leads us to serve. If we serve, it is worship. Anything that's required by God, anything that he requires of us, we know is pleasing to him. Right? Anything that he asks us to do, that he commands us to do, that he wants of us, is pleasing to him. And that means is it if it's, if it's in worship, if it's in public worship, in corporate worship, the things that we do here, or just in our godly living. Our holy living is pleasing to God, therefore it's worship. So kitchen workers, when you prepare food for us, you're worshiping. Nursery workers, when you change diapers, you're worshiping the holy God of the universe. Musicians, when you come to practice, you're worshiping. Mom and dad, when you teach your children the gospel and you raise them in godliness, you are worshiping. Husbands, when you love your wives... You are worshiping God. Children, when you obey your parents, you are worshiping God. All of life lived in godliness is worship to God. Actually, all of life lived in any way is worship to something. Any way that we live, we are pouring out our lives, making decisions, doing things, spending our time, spending our money, spending our energy, doing something, and we're expressing the worth of something that's outside of us. All of our service, all of our living is worship to God. It says that we're called to bring a sacrifice of praise in Hebrews. And then what do we know from 1 Samuel 15? It says that obedience is better than even sacrifice. To obey is better than to sacrifice. So my question to everyone this morning, is God pleased with you? Is he pleased with your worship? Are you a worshiper to begin with? Do you know God as he is? Have you acknowledged that he is holy and that you are a sinner? And have you responded inwardly by believing and trusting in Christ? Have you responded outwardly in repentance and obedience and submission? Are you a servant of God or are you a a hearer of the word only? In just a minute, we're going to sing together.
And the hymn that we're going to sing is a familiar tune, but probably unfamiliar words. That's because it's a paraphrase of this psalm. Isaac Watts wrote paraphrases in English of all of the psalms, all 150 of them. Some of them have multiple versions. And so we're going to sing Isaac Watts' version of Psalm 100 to the tune Old 100th, which is the tune that you probably know as the doxology. So as we sing that, this is our time to respond. We've heard God's word to us. We've celebrated the gospel together. And this is our time now to respond to God's word. Everyone is to respond by singing. If, if you have a, another response, you are welcome to come to the front. Maybe you have a response of prayer and you want to come and pray with someone. Pastor Aaron will be here. Uh, Brother Jim is up here, our chairman of deacons. If you need to pray with someone, you're invited to do that now. If you need to come and make a public profession of your faith in Christ, if you've been sitting here this morning and the Holy Spirit has been telling you, you are not a worshiper, but I am calling you to be a worshiper and you have been convicted of your sin to repent and put faith and trust in Christ, come and make that response public today through professing your faith in Christ. Or maybe your response is just to come and join in membership with our church. Uh, that's the time for that too. If, you're call, if God is calling you into deeper commitment and fellowship with our body here, uh, you can come and commit to join our church in membership. This time that we spend after hearing God's word is for everybody to respond, inwardly and outwardly, right now, to what God has said to us this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is always informative. It is always a little bit offensive to us when it confronts us and it confronts the idols of our hearts and it confronts the habits that have indwelt us that are sinful. And so, Lord, we thank you, even though it's painful sometimes, to be confronted with the truth of your word, we're thankful that you love us enough to discipline us and to help to shape us and to continue to help us grow into Christ-likeness, not abandoning us to ourselves, but saving us and through the power of your spirit, maturing us into godliness so that we might better glorify you and better proclaim the gospel and be better prepared for eternity living with you. Lord, this morning I pray for the responses that are on the hearts of each person here. Lord, I pray that every response on every heart here would be worship. But Lord, if there's hearts here who have not been opened by the power of your Spirit and the resurrection life, I pray that you and your Spirit would move in those hearts to wake them up from death so that they would be turned from worshiping other things, lesser things, worldly things, to worshiping you, our one true and living God. Because of the sacrifice that was paid on our behalf by your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.